how fast two minutes go. <laughs> we ready? Let's uh, let's open with a prayer, real quick. <clears throat> Father, we come here to honor you and to uh, to learn from you, and uh, we just ask you. Please, will you keep us from error, and uh, will you keep us on task, and please, uh, please, Father, make us wiser for being here, make us more knowledgeable, please attend your word, and uh, please work in our hearts to sanctify us and to bring us to maturity in Christ. We thank you for bringing us here. And uh, we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, before we get started, we've got, some, we've got some study sheets or some handouts up here if you'd like one. I think I covered most people, but I uh, probably should have put them at the back instead of up here. But anybody that doesn't have a, a handout that, that would like a handout, maybe? Uh, thanks. Uh, and before we get started, just real quick, if you look up here, if I hold my arms out like this, the distance between my fingertips is roughly six feet. And that distance is known as a fathom. And uh, it comes from an old English word, uh, F-A-E-T-H-M, which means outstretched arms. Pretty clever. And uh, so if I outstretch my arms like this, they're about six feet. And so if I want to measure the circumference of something, I could reach around it like this. If I can, if I can reach around there, then that's a fathom. And uh, uh, it, it also is a synonym for the word embrace. And, uh, and later, that was the original meaning, later they began to measure water depth in fathoms. And so they still use this today. If you're sailing your yacht into shallow water, you want to keep this in mind, that... Uh, you need to know how shallow that water is. And so they still use sounding ropes today. And it's a rope with a weight on the end of it. And there's a measurement. At every fathom, there's a marking. And it's different colored tape, sometimes different material even, or a different object on that rope so you can quickly know how deep the water is. But if you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and your rope just won't quite reach the bottom, uh, or... If there's something that you just can't quite get your arms around, well, that would be unfathomable, okay? Just in case you hear that word again today. (laughs) Yeah, but but how long, you know, I'm 70, you're what, 81. Have you ever looked up the definition of fathom as much as you've used that word... (laughs) Have you ever really known what it meant? (laughs) About a hundred years ago, okay, here we go. Kelly used to play this game. When I'd start telling a story, she would say, he's going to make a point here eventually. (laughs) And let's see if I can guess what that point is before he gets there. (laughs) So let's see how good you are at this. (laughs) Here we go. A uh, hundred years ago, it was the prevailing, 
prevailing thought in astronomy that there was only one galaxy, and that was the Milky Way, and it was static. And there were people who had suggested that it was otherwise, but the prevailing view was that there was only one galaxy. Einstein even altered some of his equations to conform to this belief, even though the equations tended to suggest that there was something else was true. After World War I, there was a new face in the crowd, a guy named Edwin Hubble, and uh, Hubble was studying some nebulae in the universe that everybody had always considered as dust. And somewhere uh, Hubble said, that's not dust, it's another galaxy. And once they realized this, they began to observe other galaxies and Hubble, in his calculations, determined that these galaxies were moving away from us. It wasn't a static universe. We had an expanding universe. When uh, NASA launched its first space telescope, they named it after Edwin Hubble, the Hubble Telescope. A telescope orbiting the Earth outside the Earth's atmospheric haze to give us better observations of the universe. As of December 2018, data coming back from the Hubble Telescope has spawned 15,000 scientific papers. That averages out to about 517 papers per year, about 1.4 papers per day, every day, for the past 29 years. Recently, they asked Hubble to look toward the North Star. You've probably heard this story to see if there's anything out there. Uh, because of atmospheric haze, the most powerful telescopes in the world have never found anything near the North Star. And I remember when I was in Boy Scouts, we pretty much assumed there was nothing anywhere near the North Star. Well, recently, Hubble looked out there and took a picture. And what came back was 10,000 galaxies. These are galaxies, Ten, not 10,000 stars. 10,000 galaxies, galaxies that we never knew about, didn't know were out there. And uh, because of this discovery, we now know there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the Earth's beaches. Okay? Hold that thought. <laughs> Trying to... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bonus bonus points. <laughs> Today we're starting a six-part video series called Calvinism and the Christian Life by Ian Hamilton. If you're anything like me, when you hear the name Ian Hamilton, you immediately think of the Scottish patriot who stole the Stone of Destiny and returned it to Scotland. That's, that was the first thing I thought about when I heard that name. And so... But it's not him. And so you're probably saying to yourself, well, if it's not him, it must be the White Sox relief pitcher, Ian Hamilton. <laughs> and it's not him either. This, this Ian Hamilton is the pastor of Cambridge Presbyterian Church in Cambridge, England, about 50 miles northeast of London. And he apparently has something to do. I think he may teach also at a, a seminary in South Carolina like Greenville Bible Seminary, something like that. <clears throat> um, so I, I get to introduce this series, and i got to tell you, 
uh, just as a matter of disclosure, when Blake proposed Calvinism and the Christian faith as a subject here, I told the other elders that I don't consider myself a Calvinist and I don't want to be known as a Calvinist. I know my Church of Christ roots are showing here, and in some circles I'm outing myself as a heretic, but there are a couple of reasons I don't want to be known as as a Calvinist. Part of it comes from old feelings. It's like you hear an old song, puts you back in a place, and when I hear the word Calvinist, it kind of puts me back in a place because I didn't feel like I was introduced to Calvinism quite as much as I was assaulted by Calvinism. And uh, uh, it, it always seemed like people were saying to me, I'm intellectually superior to you, and I read better books than you read, therefore I'm a Calvinist, and you're not. And uh, so, you know, the sting of that lash it might have been a little too candid for me. But even other Calvinists observe Calvinists who present Calvinism with a certain air of arrogance. Uh, Brad Swigert alluded to that last Sunday evening. And so it's not a, a, uh, an accusation that arises in a vacuum. There's a reason for it. And so that's what I think of when I think of the word Calvinist. Uh, Art suggested when I told the elders this, he said, sometimes what you see as arrogance is not actually arrogance, it's just exuberance. And uh, just thinking that through, I have to give quite a bit of ground on that. And uh, I know quite a few Calvinists these days, and and they're people I'm glad are in my life. They're very humble people, and they're very respectable people, and I'm I'm glad they are in my life. And so, so Art's right. Sometimes what I saw as arrogance might have just been exuberance, but it's it's still there, and it still kind of sticks with me. What I'd like to address this morning real quick is, is uh, if you're harboring a grudge, if you're quite, kind of like not in the Calvinist camp and you're saying, well, I don't really want to be called a Calvinist either. Those people are arrogant. I'd like to ask you to put that aside because there's a lot of stuff in these videos that's of value and you don't want to miss out on it because you're harboring a grudge. You know. Um, Another reason, though, that I don't want to be called a Calvinist, it's a little, little better than the first one, and that is that John Calvin did not die for me. Why would I call myself a Calvinist? It's like saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of John Calvin, and, uh, and I have that fear. And why would I call the gospel Calvinism? Why don't I just call it the gospel of Christ? Why do I have to come up with a name like Calvinism? And my fear is, is like when Kelly was dying and everybody started, we, we talked a lot about the hope that we have. My fear was that we would start worshiping that hope rather than worshiping the one who died to give us that hope. And my fear of Calvinism and calling the gospel Calvinism is that we'll start attributing this to John Calvin rather than attributing it to the one who it, it should be attributed to. It's kind of a minor point, but I feel like, to be completely honest, as I'm watching these videos, 
it's beginning to grate on me. It's really, it's really a source of irritation for me that we keep calling this Calvinism rather than calling it the gospel. So, not a big point, you know. I need to put that aside. And if you find that this is irritating you, I'm going to ask you to put it aside and listen to what's being said, okay? Because I'm kind of excited about these videos. But, as I said last week, I'm a little worried about hyping the videos up. It's kind of like a recent Super Bowl that was, (laughs) it was a little disappointing (laughs) in spite of the hype. And so I hope you enjoy this. I prefer to simply call myself a Christian. Why can't I just call myself a Christian? And it's because in our world, the word Christian doesn't have much of a definition. I could be anything. And uh, the word Calvinism, if nothing else, it has a definition. And it says a whole lot in a hurry. So if you tell somebody you're a Calvinist, they get an idea real quick where you're coming from. I grew up in a semi-Pelagian church. Pelagius believed and taught that men are born innocent. And we believed that men were born innocent. We we weren't real fans of total depravity. Uh, On unmerited favor, we interpreted James 2.17, faith without works is dead. You've got to work your way into heaven. And uh, recently I heard it put this way. Man is saved by faith for sure, but there's got to be some human responsibility in there somewhere. On limited atonement, well, everyone's born innocent. If you die innocent, you're going to heaven because you're innocent. And in the final analysis, I think I've decided what we're trying to do is regain our innocence so that we die innocent. Um, On irresistible grace, it's a matter of human responsibility. And, And then on perseverance of saints, can I lose my salvation? Well, Moses struck the rock and was not allowed to enter the Holy Land. Um, That's what we believed. And there was no security for the believer. If you were ever innocent to begin with and you lost that innocence, were you able to regain that innocence so that you died innocent? What were the chances? No security. Well, this is not the reason I came to be in the Reformed camp. But after I was in the reform camp, one day I was reading in Matthew 18, the famous forgiveness chapter where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to this. A king came to settle accounts with servants, and one of the servants owed 10,000 talents. It was a debt so large that he had no hope of paying it. No matter what he does, it's going to be impossible to repay this debt. It was Peter who asked this question, do I have to keep forgiving my brother who keeps sinning against me? And being from a semi-Pelagian background, I always skipped over this story. I always got down to the do. This is what you do, you know. And one day I'm reading this parable, and all of a sudden he goes, you know what? (laughs) I think this is talking about me. And... And it was. It was talking about me. It was talking about Peter. It's talking about you. The servant who owes 10,000 talents. This was not a story just to illustrate something. 
And there are places in Scripture where I've seen stuff like this, where I've, I've finally seen it. Finally, it was brought to my mind. This is what this part of the Scripture is talking about. When I see something like that, it's like I was looking at a distant object that I thought was dust, and I discovered it was a whole new galaxy. It's something that changes my paradigm. It opens another world to me. It makes me see God in a different light. It gives me a greater appreciation for the gospel. All those years, I couldn't see the glory of the gospel. I was missing it. I was missing its richness. I was missing its beauty. I was missing the 10,000 galaxies of the gospel. It was like looking at the North Star and thinking that's all there was, when right behind it were 10,000 galaxies. Today, in my arrogance, I drive down a street and I see a church marquee that has something on there that I, I think might be a little cringeworthy. Or I hear something in a modern church song that I think might be a little cringeworthy. Or I see something posted on Facebook. Or I hear something that one of my relatives says. This is never a time to get self-congratulatory. This is never a time to say, I see this and you don't. Because there was a time I didn't see it. But the, the deal is they're missing the glory of the gospel. They're missing its richness and its beauty. The unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So why did I drag you through all that? <clears throat> because... In our frame study, we've been doing this, this uh, academic, heavy academic study. And when I heard about this study and I saw a title called What is Calvinism? I immediately went, okay, we're going to get another academic study of Calvinism. And what I hoped to do in my introduction is to try to get you ready for what's coming to you. The... Uh, <clears throat> This video series will not be an academic study of Calvinism, so don't expect that. And uh, what it's going to be is the way this guy approaches this, the flavor and the tenor of these videos is he says, let's take some time here and stop and think about the 10,000 galaxies of the gospel. And, uh, and uh, that has been my experience. Chance and Rob have said they've really enjoyed these videos um, in the words of John Calvin it's at the top of your study seat there my heart I give to you O God promptly and sincerely we're not here to win their arguments we're not here to fill our hip pockets with big words and big concepts we're trying to get an accurate perception of the gospel and and a big purpose in the study we're going through right now with Frame and with this video series is we want to develop 
a high view of God, and we want to have an appropriate response to an accurate perception of the gospel and a high view of God. Okay? My heart I give to you, O God, promptly and sincerely. So, uh, just want to thank David Vessel back here. We've had all kinds of noise coming through. The, when we tried to play a video on the computer, we've had all kinds of noise. And David, I think it was his brother-in-law, got up here and put a two-pronged plug up there, which lifted the ground, whatever that means. And uh, they, uh, our ladder doesn't reach that plug. So David risked his life to put that plug in up there. <laughs> and uh, um, today we're back on the silver screen up here. So thanks to David Vessel. So David, would you play this for us? Well, we have a little time, and I, I put on your study sheet, I just put the four, uh, the four notes of, uh, of Calvinism. When he asked the question, what is Calvinism, what answer did you come up with? Did he give you a succinct answer that you said, oh, now I know what Calvinism is? Yeah, anybody? It took me... I don't know how many times I had to listen to that video before I finally went, oh, that, here's his answer here. I kept expecting him to say, here's the answer. And he doesn't really do it, does he? Um, I, the reason I just put those down there and left everything else blank was so you could take notes. Ken has all the answers on his iPad back there if you, if you, if you want to check with him. Um, we have a little time. Does anybody have any comments? Okay. Maybe. Okay, the question uh, from Mike is, uh, for the recording is, uh, let's make sure we got this. So he says, Calvinism is a religious attitude and then he comes back and says, Calvinism is actually the gospel. Can we say that the gospel is a religious attitude? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not sure I want to answer that question. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just want to understand that Calvinism is a religious attitude. I'd take a stab at it. <clears throat> and uh, Because, you know, <laughs> I've been told that I'm, I'm not that smart, but uh, let's see. <laughs> right, here's what I would say myself. The gospel is the gospel. The gospel is an objective truth. So it's certainly not an attitude. I think uh, I would say a proper understanding of the gospel will produce an attitude. Uh, and that and that would be... Anybody else would... Right. So, okay, and, and again, just to make sure it's on the recording, 
So your answer is, uh, uh, if we approach the gospel as an abstract, just something to study, and, uh, and we, we can come up with all the truth about the gospel we want to, but unless we have a proper posture toward God, we won't respond to the gospel in an appropriate way. So, okay, again, just to make sure it's on the recording, so Calvinism is right worship, right? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Um, let's go through real quick, just go through the four pulse beats. We have the breathless wonder, uh, how unsearchable your ways, how, oh, the, oh, the depth of the gospel. Do you ever find yourself caught up in that? Just how deep the gospel is and how you never can quite seem to figure it out. And that every time you figure something else out, there's something else beyond it. And that it's never boring. Do you ever stop to think that maybe in eternity, that's how we're going to spend eternity? It's not like everything's going to be revealed to us all of a sudden. Um, I know I tend to get a too small view of God. And I, I'm just excited that in eternity. Grace-constrained humility. Were you surprised to discover that Calvinism is marked by grace-constrained humility? That's uh, uh, certainly, I'm sorry, it, it, it comes across to us sometimes it's not. But it, I, I'm just, I really enjoyed listening to this, that you take a person like, Calvin, who's really touched by the gospel. And, uh, and then you take Paul, and he was talking about Paul touched by the gospel, his grace-constrained humility. And uh, um, I, d- I didn't particularly pick it up this morning. He might have said it, but it's in the study notes uh, that Calvin was very concerned about not going beyond the word, not saying something to anybody that was not in the word. And, and Calvin was coming off a history of the church with his traditions and all the changes that had been made to the gospel over the years. And Calvin's coming back and telling people, you got to go to the word. And this is, this is where it is. And the exultant adoration. Um, any thoughts on that? <clears throat> Anybody? Anything that stood out to you there and said, Tom's Tom's comment again, just for the recording. So Tom's comment is is uh, you take somebody like Paul who came from a background of I'm here because I choose to be here, realizing that he was chosen to be here. And the, the, his response to that was this abject humility in, in realizing that. Yes, indeed. There have been some other places in Scripture that I've, I've, I've come across this stuff in my life. And, and when you come across something like what I was talking about in Matthew 18 or other places in the Bible, when you realize 
this, this is not about me, it's about God. And one thing I thought about that, that I didn't do today, but, but I do, I kind of see this. If I look at the Bible through one lens, I see the great men and women of the Bible. If I look through the Bible with another lens, I see God. And I think that's the lens we need to see the Bible through. And, it, and I would say that's exactly what you're saying. I think Paul sees it through that lens. So wholehearted consecration. We come down to our last point. Um, <clears throat> I've listened to these talks over and over over the past few weeks. And the more I listen to them, it's just the more I get caught up in them. Uh, when Blake sent out and he said, well, let's do this study, one of the things he said is we're looking for a high view of God. And uh, over the next several weeks as we go over these series, they're going to maintain this flavor right here. Oh, sorry, Siri. <laughs> as we go through this group of videos, uh, I hope that you get caught up in it and I hope that some things start to change if, they, if they're not already there that maybe you get into this exultant adoration and this wholehearted consecration and that, that it, I've found a lot in our church here over the past several years, that there are some video series that we go through that you can, you can watch the growth in our church as it's happening. And I'm hoping that over the next several weeks, this kind of stuff starts to happen. I hope we, hope we see it. I think it's going to be good. Every, every talk is just like this one. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. So, hope you are too. So, okay. Oh, yes. So for, for someone to be able to say, my heart, I give to you, O God, promptly and sincerely, to be, to be able to say that honestly, with integrity, do you have to work through these four pulse beats? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that we will ever work through those four pulse beats. That's probably why we don't call this alertism or, or savageism for sure. You know, <laughs> uh, I did, you know what I really came away from this with was just a wonderful, what wonderful example John Calvin was. What a, what a wonderful example of a, of a humble man who said, I want to please God. I don't know that any of us can say this wholeheartedly about ourselves. My heart I give to you, O oh God, promptly and sincerely. This is what I was saying a while ago. I hope over the next several weeks we are really moving in that direction. Uh, and I, and I, that's, that's what I hope develops, Mike. Is that, yes, sir?
go. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, uh, one thing about Calvin, he was a humble man, and he was a great man. But if you read his whole life, he made lots of mistakes. He even kind of got off track during the later part of his life. At one period of time in Geneva, he was instrumental in condemning a man to death because of a different theological position, considering him a heretic. And he regretted that greatly later on in his life. So he's not a perfect man. He didn't probably f fulfill this description of him perfectly, and none of us ever will. Uh, and so I think, you know, we, we, it's hard for us to start comparing ourselves to anybody. We sometimes get kind of foolish in that regard. What we do is compare ourselves to God, recognizes our failure, and then thankful to him, I mean, to Jesus, and thankful to him that he lived up to the measure of wholeheartedness and that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yes, sir. No. So it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a step by step. Okay. Yes. All right. That's it. That's all I got. Thanks. Thanks.